Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. Um, if you've got a Bible, could you go to Mark chapter 2? Mark chapter 2, we're going to be reading a short section from there momentarily. Now, if I ask you a question this morning, what your greatest need is, I don't know how you would answer that today. Some of you might go kind of very big and say, well, actually, in light of what's happening in the, um, in the political arena, that's a good question. What on earth is happening in the political arena if you follow the news? But one of the big questions might be, well, we need food and we need shelter, somewhere warm, and that's something that's been put on and being pressured by the current sort of economic crisis that we are going through. For some of you might be, well, actually, health and well-being is my greatest need. Either I'm not well or I'm not right or people I know aren't, and that's something you're looking to. Maybe it's a relational need. Maybe it's something to do with your family, your spouse, your children, a need for them or something's happening in them. That's my greatest need at the moment. I need that dealt with. It might be something as simple as job, money, I don't have one, I need one, I don't have it, I need it, that is my need. It might be something along the lines of fulfillment or social acceptance. I need to be in with that group, in with that crowd. I need to get to the next level. But what we're going to look at today in the next passage from Mark is man's greatest need. And there might be many answers to that question, but the Bible gives us one definitive answer. And we're in the Gospel of Mark, we started this new series all about Jesus. You can catch up online the ones that you've missed. We've seen this last week about Jesus has come to earth. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is the king of that kingdom and he has demonstrated it through deliverance, healing and salvation. And what we're moving now in the beginning of chapter 2 is a new sort of subsection within the gospel. And what we've got are five narratives that come one after the other, that give further insight into Jesus establishing his kingdom. And they also put him in conflict with the religious authorities at the time. And so what we've got, we've got Jesus' authority, then we've got Jesus' fasting, and uh, sorry, Jesus' company, and then we've got Jesus' fasting and the Sabbath. And I'm going to look at the first two this week, and then Jeremy's going to finish it out next week. So we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 17 today, and we're going to see Jesus' increasing conflict uh, with those around him as he brings in the kingdom of God, and he finds himself into opposition uh, for the religious authority who had a particular way of thinking and doing stuff, and Jesus' way just butts straight up against this. So we've got the passage, Mark chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 17, and we're going to appear on the screen behind, and we're all going to have a go at reading this together. It's good to read scripture, so get comfortable, make sure you can see what's on the screen. I will count us in, and then we're going to read it. We've got five, I think it's five slides, so press in. Was that like a, oh no. <laughs> we're reading the word of God here. This is like, yes, we should have more, Stuart. Yeah, okay, that wasn't very, that was a muted response, we'll call that. Here we go, we'll do three, two, one. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, 
they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, fantastic. Now, this is quite a famous um, passage uh, within the gospel there, particularly that first story. And we're going to look at two things today. We're going to look at Jesus' um, authority and we're going to look at Jesus' company. And the big idea is that Jesus offers forgiveness and grace to the undeserving. Jesus offers forgiveness and grace to the undeserving. Okay, Jesus' authority, the first thing. Now, we see the beginning, we see determined faith. Let's go through this story. The back in Capernaum. Capernaum's where they started. Jesus' kind of home base, if you will. It's not where he grew up. That's Nazareth, but he's in Capernaum. We think that's where Peter lived because his mother-in-law was ill. We've had that. So they've obviously gone back after the preaching tour from the last section. And he's back in there. Everyone hears about it. And they all come flying in, all the crowd. It says many were gathered. We've seen this in the previous section, that there's something about Jesus that draws a crowd. It's a sign of his popularity. However, in Mark's gospel, when we read about the crowds, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are followers of Jesus. They're merely the curious and the watching. And often the crowds get in the way. So the fact that Jesus has got crowds isn't necessarily a good thing because they can sometimes cause him problems and get in the way, as which we'll see here. Proximity to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean faith in Jesus, as the crowds demonstrate throughout his ministry. And he said, while he was gathered there, he was preaching the word. This was the gospel of God. We've seen this back in uh, verses 14, 15 of the previous chapter. Kingdom of God is here. Repent and 
believe the good news. So that's the summary Mark gives us. But Jesus is obviously explaining it to the crowds. They've come to listen. And into this comes a situation, into this context comes a paralyzed man. Notice the tense changes from the past tense to the present tense. This might well be Peter's reminiscence. Because we've worked out that Mark is uh, basically Peter's memoirs, the Gospel of Mark. Mark, John Mark traveled with Peter. And the crowds are blocking the path to Jesus. When I said they were not helpful, here's an example. A needy person is coming to Jesus and he can't get there because the crowds are in the way. The crowds are just standing observing. But there's someone who wants to get to Jesus for a particular need. And these four friends bring their friend who is paralyzed on a mat. So they have to carry him. And they can't get to Jesus because there are crowds in the way, so they can't get in the house because there would have been bodies there. They couldn't push through because obviously there's a lot of them and they're carrying someone. So what do they do? They don't give up. They are determined to see Jesus. And so they take the stairs, which would have been on the outside of the house, and they go up to the roof Back in that day, many of the houses were single-story dwellings and they had wooden beams across the roof which would have had a thatch on it and then mud would have gone over the top to create a kind of a weatherproofing. But you could access them from the outside of the house and there are times actually we read in uh, the Bible where people actually go up there. I think uh, Peter was up there, wasn't he, in Acts, praying when he had his vision. He went up to the roof uh, to pray just to get a bit of space. And so they go up there, and because of the nature of what the roof was, they start to pull it apart to make a hole and to lower their friend down so they can get to Jesus. Nothing was going to stop them bringing their friend to Jesus. And I can imagine it would have made one heck of a mess of the roof, but also for anyone under the roof, which would have included Jesus and those listening to him, there would have been this, they would have, there was something would have happened. He would have been mid-flow and there'd have someone, everyone would suddenly start looking up. And if you're the speaker and everyone starts, you suddenly notice and you're looking up, you're like, oh crumbs. And the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger as they're pulling bits apart. It's all raining down. I can imagine a little bit of consternation. I can imagine Peter if it was his house, being like, what are you doing? This is my house. But down comes the man who is paralyzed um, from his friends. They lower him down so he can get right close to Jesus. What we see is we see their faith in action. They're actually doing some about it. They want to get to Jesus and nothing not even a roof, not even crowds was going to stop them. And so we see the determined faith of the friends and then we see the demonstrated authority of Jesus because he responds to this. He doesn't respond in annoyance because his sermon was interrupted. He responds with encouragement because he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That son is a term of endearment like you would, a father might say to the son from a benevolent authority figure, saying to their son they love him. So it's a, it's an, a, a, a time of affection from Jesus towards this man. And this is the first mention of faith in the Gospel of Mark. If you're taking notes and you've got the journal, note that down. Jesus is seeing faith, but faith isn't about knowledge it's about knowing. It is about a belief that manifests in an action. 
So Jesus is seeing something happen. I read this quote while I was researching this. It says, faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. And so that's what they had. They were going to get to Jesus to deal with it. And we see that sometimes in life. We had last week, we had the sermon and the, the meeting here. And after that, we had some people uh, bring some prophetic stuff. I feel God saying this. And then what did we do? We said, if you feel God speaking to you, you need to respond. And we want you to come to receive prayer. That's faith in action. I had one guy came forward. I prayed for him. Some of his friends prayed for him. God met him. It was powerful. But I think one of the reasons that happened was he responded in faith. He did something. He got out of his chair, he marched down the front, and he said, I want to respond to Jesus. He then, I said, you pray. He prayed, we prayed, and I said at the end, what's happening? And he said, he just came out with all this stuff God had done in his life, right there and then in front of us. And I thought, that's faith in action. That is wonderful. It is a determination to get to Jesus and respond to it. Jesus said when he saw their faith, now this can cause a little bit of questioning well who's he talking about whose faith is it the faith of the four friends is it the faith plural of all of them does it mean the paralytics faith um some people say it's just the four friends i'm inclined to believe it's all five of them because i don't imagine the paralytic was taken kicking and screaming maybe he couldn't kick but he could definitely have screamed so don't take me to jesus i imagine he was part of it too so he he sees their faith and we see in other points in the gospel in chapter 5 and in chapter 7 where people bring others to Jesus on behalf of them. They pray but also we see people coming for themselves as well. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. What? Duh. Jesus, can you see his need? The guy's on a mat. He can't move. He can't walk. He can't get up. He can't do things he's stuck there why on earth do you want to forgive him of his sins and what Jesus is doing is dealing with his greatest need his greatest need is forgiveness now we have to bonk out there might have been a connection in there because between sin and illness because that does come up in scripture and this is an unusual one for Jesus because he doesn't often when he heals people say that your sins are forgiven but this one he did now this could be because his man's illness was um, was connected to sin or even the man just thought it was so he was dealing with it. but whatever it was Jesus is dealing with his greatest need and his greatest need was forgiveness of sin even more than a long-term health condition which this man had, which was stopping him, preventing him doing many things in life. And so Jesus just hangs that out there and says, your sins are forgiven. And now the, the story then goes a very different direction because what we get is the response of some of the people who were sitting there, which were the scribes. Why does this man speak like this? Who can give sin but God alone? He must be blaspheming. The paralytic came for healing, but the first thing he received was forgiveness. And the scribes were scandalized by this. They've appeared previously in the last section, uh, verse 22. And we've already found that they don't have authority in teaching because Jesus does. The scribes lack that authority. Jesus as God the Son came teaching with authority. The scribes don't. They're the ones who kept the law uh, and kept it preserved and were to teach the, uh, the people. But they were lacking in comparison to Jesus And they are not ones. They think they believe the only person who could forgive sins was God alone. 
Which the irony of that is, who was the one who was proclaiming forgiveness? God alone. They just didn't see that at that point. But Mark has made it very clear who Jesus is. And so their response is, this man's blaspheming. Blaspheming, which is really bad because in Leviticus, which we've studied just even this year, blasphemy was punishable by death. And so actually we've got a problem here. This man is saying your sins are forgiven. The only person who forgives sins is God. We don't think he's God, therefore he's blaspheming. Well, the logical conclusion that is then he deserves to be put to death as a result. That never goes anywhere because it says in verse 8, and immediately... Jesus isn't, isn't slow on this. He perceives in his spirit that they question within themselves. So he knows what's going on. He knows what they are thinking. And he responds to them, why do you question these things in your heart? What's, what's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And so what Jesus is using here is a form of argument. And he's basically saying there are two options, and one of them is easier than the other. There's, you can be healed, rise, walk, or I can say your sins are forgiven. Which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, because there's no hard evidence for that. I can just pronounce that over people. The really difficult one is to say, heal them and get them up and let them walk, because you actually have to require actual evidence. The paralyzed man would no longer be paralyzed. He would have gone from lying down to standing up. So that's the harder one from the point of view of objective evidence. And he's saying, well, actually, what's easier? Well, the obvious one, the easy one, is just to pronounce your sins as given. But then Jesus is saying, well, actually, if I can do the, hard, the easy one, which is, um, if I'm sorry, if I can do the hard one, which is heal him, therefore, by, by logical, I can also do the easy one, which is forgive his sins. And so he puts them on the spot there, saying, actually, if I can do what you perceive as more difficult, which is healing him, Therefore, I can also do what you perceive more easy, which is pronouncing forgiveness of his sins. And we've got a situation here where we've got a paralyzed man who is physically paralyzed before God. But we've also got scribes, religious men, who are spiritually paralyzed before God. And they don't see it. The paralyzed man knows he's got a problem. He knows he can't walk. He knows he needs help. The scribes who are spiritually paralyzed don't, are not aware of their need. And Jesus says, if you want to know my authority, use that word, if you want to know, if you want to understand that I have the authority to forgive sins, let me heal this person. Let me say to him, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And then Jesus uses a, a title for himself, son of man. For those of you who have taken notes, this comes 14 times in the book of Mark. This is the first. And it is a it is a, Jesus, a term Jesus uses about himself. Now there's questions as to why. The prevailing wisdom is that it didn't carry connotations of the Messiah. We've already looked at that as we've gone through Mark's gospel, that Jesus is trying to avoid being pegged as the Messiah, not because he wasn't, was because people didn't understand what it meant, which comes back to this secrecy theme that runs through gospel of Mark, that He's trying to hide his identity because if you cottoned on to who I was in Messiah, you'd put wrong expectations on me to fight, kill the Romans, which is not why I came. I didn't come to beat, with, beat the Romans. I came to do something way more important, which was deal with the problem of sin in people's lives. And so this term, Son of Man, comes up 14 times. It's used a couple of times in refer, um, reference to judgment, uh, which is from Daniel 7, where it talks about one like a Son of Man coming before the throne. Uh, the ancient of days and receiving authority um, a couple of times to do with authority and then nine times is to do with suffering which is again Mark's 
over one of those themes he wails through that Jesus has come to suffer and die. And so Jesus describes himself as the son of man, referencing back to Daniel. He is the one with authority here, but he's also the one who's going to suffer and die. And he says, if I can do the hard thing healing this man, then I can do the apparently easy thing of forgiving him. And so what's he say? Take up your bed and walk. What happens? Verse 12, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The paralyzed man responds, is instantly healed, So he's come and he's had his needs met, his obvious need, which was his paralysis, and his secondary need, which was way more important, which was his standing before God, and he has been forgiven. And Jesus is thus proving, by healing him, I can also be the one to forgive sins. I'm also the one who can deal with the greatest problem. And what happens? It says they were all amazed and glorified God. We've never seen anything like this and again, that's making Mark's point. He's talking about, remember right at the beginning where he said there's a, something is happening, a new creation is coming, a new beginning because God the Son has come to earth and Jesus is doing things that have just never been seen before and he is coming, making his statement there. So he has authority to heal. We've already seen that, but now he has seen we've, he has authority to forgive sins. Let's look at the next section which is Jesus' company, Jesus' company. All right, and what we're going to see here, we're going to see gracious calling and we're going to see gracious fellowship. So having immediately done that, it says, he went out beside the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, where he called the fishermen previously. And what we see here in these few verses is a parallel of what Jesus did in uh, one, chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, where he called uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him. And this time he goes out and he sees someone and he is teaching them again, which is his primary activity. Preaching, teaching has come up in both passages. And he passes by Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now this also he's referred to as Matthew. We find in Matthew 9.9. This is also called Matthew. He's the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. But he is a tax collector. Dun, dun, dun. If you know anything about um, the New Testament, the gospels, Uh, and tax collectors in particular, you will know this is just bad. This is bad in every way. A little bit of background about tax collectors. Well, Capernaum is a border town between regions, so it's, it's not unusual in the slightest that tax collectors were there. They would be taking money from people as they're crossing over borders, getting the taxes, and taxes, um, tax collectors were businessmen who bid before Rome as the authority, the empire, and Rome would say, in that area, this much amount of taxes needs to be taken. The tax collector as a businessman would bid and say, I will pay you for that, and then I will collect that tax on behalf of it. And as long as Rome got their money in the first place, what the tax collector did afterward, they didn't care. So this, this attracted a certain kind of businessman a thief and a scoundrel because what would happen is that they would bid with Rome and say we'll collect this many taxes and they would go to the people and they would take twice, three times as much and they would just pocket the difference. And so not only were they thieves and scoundrels but they were collaborators working with the invading power Rome and they were robbing their countrymen. And so they would be fleecing their fellow Jews while at the same time paying to Rome the hated authority overlords. So you can see why they were not liked. Uh, A tax collector 
was disqualified as a judge or even a witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. We saw that in last week's um, sermon about the synagogue, and they were a cause of disgrace to their family. A touch of a tax collector rendered the house unclean. We dealt with uncleanness when we looked at um, Leviticus and partly last week looking at the leper as well. They, they were forbidden, Jews were forbidden to receive money, even gifts of charity from tax collectors since their revenue was redeemed, uh, deemed as robbery. So if you were a beggar and you were poor and someone was giving you money, you wouldn't accept it from a tax collector. You would rather go hungry. That's how bad they were hated. They were considered unclean. Remember the leper who was unclean because of his leprosy from last week? They were considered on the same level. And in fact, they might have been considered worse than a leper. Why? The leper didn't choose their condition. The tax collector did. The tax collector knew what they were getting in for when they went into it. They knew what the consequences were. The leper didn't. And so we've got Levi sitting in his booth, doing his job and stealing from his fellow countrymen. And what does Jesus say to him? Follow me. This is a phrase that we've seen already in chapter 1, when he called the fisherman, and it is a phrase that is only ever used of disciples of Jesus. So what Jesus is doing is calling this guy, Levi, the worst, fringes of society, hated, despised, and he's saying, you come be with me. Come follow me. The same thing he's called to uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John, who are now with him. He's living in one of their houses. He's saying, you come join me. And what does Levi do? He responds exactly the same way as the fisherman. He says, and he rose. And he followed him. He left behind his booth and his records and his money and whatever was happening there. And he followed Jesus. He left it behind. He risked it all to put his faith and trust in the one who called him. It wasn't just a knowledge thing with Levi. He acted out of his faith and he did something and Jesus, again, didn't offer him anything, didn't prove anything. He just simply made a call. You follow me. And Levi responded. And so Jesus has now called into his inner circle, into the people who are close to him, a thoroughly disreputable, hated and despised individual. This is an act of outstanding grace. The unmerited favor of God being poured out on someone who is so undeserving in the eyes of the world. There's no way the rabbi, the teacher, the one who performs great miracles from God would have him. And what does Jesus say to him? Come, follow me. And then it gets worse. It actually gets worse. You look at that point and you think, well, you're just, social media is going to blow up over this. And then it, what does it say next? And as he reclined at table in whose house? Levi's house. He's there with him. He's there at his house. So he's not, he's not only called him to follow me. You think, well, maybe he can get away from it. He can follow you at a distance. He can kind of stay over there. No, no. He goes into his house. And he's having dinner 
with, and there's not just Levi there, there are many tax collectors and sinners. Because the tax collectors obviously had their own category. Sinners is more of a catch-all term. So Levi wasn't the exception. And the sinners, that was a reference to those who stood outside the law of God. Not about people, good people who occasionally make mistakes. It's talking about people who, are, who have just rejected the law of God. Whether they are criminals, because they just live outside the law of the brain, or even those maybe who are too poor, too ignorant to just to, to live up to standards of religious authority. They just, they just don't get involved in That's just beyond them. They were just bracket. They were all sinners, but they were all there at the house. And it says they were reclining which means they were having dinner together. Jesus is right there with the alienated and the needy and the outcasts of society, and he is right in the middle with them, eating with them. And eating was a sign of intimacy and fellowship. If you share a meal with someone, it's like we're together, we're, we're, we're bonding. We're looking each other in the face. You're sharing my food, we're sharing the same bowl. It was a sign of connection, relationship, and fellowship. And Jesus is right there, with these people, eating with them. And what we get is another one of the themes that run through Mark is the insiders and outsiders themes. Because on the inside with Jesus is who? The worst, the dregs, those he's called to himself. And who's on the outside? Well, it says the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious guys the guys who tried to keep the law, the guys who had all their standards that they tried to keep up with. And the Pharisees, although in Mark's gospel and the other gospels, the Pharisees are the bad guys. At the time, they were the good guys. Because they're the ones who rejected Rome. We don't want anything to do with you, Rome. We love the law of God, the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, and we will follow them. And then we will do whatever we can. And that was their motivation. That was a good motivation to start with. It went bad, but round and about, these were the good guys. These were the guys who knew the law. These are the guys who prayed. These are the guys who went to synagogue every week. But actually, they're on the outside. They're on the outside. On the inside are the reprobates, the worst, the people who know they've got problems. And on the outside are the people who think they're good enough for God because they follow his laws. And the language there that Jews, commentators, tell us is although even though it was at Levi's home, Jesus is actually the one who's acting as the host. He's the host and he's called the people to himself, which points forward to what? It points forward to the great banquet at the end where there'll be members of every tribe and every nation and they will all be there at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Jesus will be the host and the nations will come to him. We see it in microcosm here where he's calling people to himself. And we see an illustration of grace again. The gracious fellowship of God where he calls those who are undeserving and ill-deserving into his presence. People who realize that they have no righteousness of their own. That they don't deserve to be there. Yet they come not based on themselves but purely on the invitation of God who says, you come to me, you come and eat with me. And the natural response from the religious authorities who have their laws, their morals, you've got to keep these standards, is what is he doing? Why is he there? Why are you eating with these people? And then Jesus gives this final remark in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now, just, just to be clear, that, that doesn't mean there's an exemption of this, like, oh, there are some who are righteous. No, but the point Jesus is making is he's come to call people who know they're not. There are people who think they are, although they're not, but he's come to call the ones who are aware of their need. He's come to call the ones who know they need help. Like the paralyzed man, he knew he had a problem. I've got to get to Jesus and a crowd and a roof aren't going to stop me. And the same with Levi and his friends. We have got nothing. But Jesus calls our name and we come to him. And Jesus comes to stand among those who know they are sinners. Who know they are unrighteous. Who know where they stand before a holy God and know they have a need for him. And he's come to meet with them. He's come to forgive and he's come to have fellowship. A couple of bits of application to finish for, for us and then we'll earth it and we'll sing. First one, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Sin is our greatest problem. What does that mean? It's a Bible word. What does sin mean? It has many um, dynamics. First of all, it's the breaking of God's law. When we do things that we know are wrong, we know we're against God's law. When God said, don't do it, and we do it. The sins of commission, they're called. That is sin. It's breaking God's law. It's also failing to meet God's standards. God's standards is holiness and perfection. That's who he is. And when we don't do that, when we don't do things we should do to meet that, to love and care and serve for others, those are the sins of omission. We fall short of his standard. And that, again, is sin. Sin is also the inward corruption of our hearts. Jesus said it's not what goes in that makes you unclean. It's what, that, what comes out that makes you unclean. The, 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 the actions and thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, many unspoken, but we all know they're there. Sin is our greatest problem, and we are aware of our flaws and failures. We know there's something wrong. The world knows there's something wrong. Even try, if you ever tried living up to your own standards, let alone God's, we fail regularly, fall down all the time. And this puts us at odds with a holy God because he must rightly punish sin and we sit rightly under his judgment. And our greatest need is forgiveness. Sin implies a debt. We owe a debt to God and it needs to be paid. And we've looked at parables about this, the unpayable debt, but God in his mercy, can forgive this. So how do we repay a holy God? Well, we can't. So we need someone else to step in. Who do we have? Jesus. Because of his death in our place for our sin on the cross, he canceled the debt. He paid it so that we don't have it to. And his righteousness then becomes ours not because we've earned it, not because we're smart or we go to church or we do the things. It's because he has graciously given it to us. And we are to respond in faith to his message, put that faith into action and say, come to God and say, we need help. I need forgiveness, Lord. And if you're not a believer here today, that is what you need to do. You need to come to God. You need to come to Jesus He's calling you like he's calling Levi. And he's the one with the authority to forgive your sin. And he's calling you saying, come to me, I will deal with it. If you are a believer here today, you need to come to Jesus. 
Because it says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we, deceive, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a daily process that we are to go through. To recognize before a holy God, we don't measure up. And that we throw ourselves on his mercy day after day, knowing only he is the one who forgives sins. We've been forgiven as believers, sort of big but actually we know daily we still mess up and we need to come back to him. Last thing, Jesus invites us to fellowship with him. Jesus, invi- Jesus invites us to fellowship with him. He doesn't just offer forgiveness and then say stand at arm's length, dirty sinner. He invites us into fellowship with him. He forgives us. He declares us not guilty. He then adopts us into his family and we become his children. And he says, come, have fellowship with me, just like Levi. Levi said, come, leave it all behind, come follow me. And then he comes into his home, and he has fellowship with him. And we, men and women, are to follow just like Levi. We're to leave everything behind and put our faith and trust in him. This means making him the priority of our life. And fellowship with Jesus is dependent upon recognizing our need. The difference between Levi and the paralyzed man and the scribes and the Pharisees was that Levi and the paralyzed man knew they had a problem, knew they had a need, and they needed to get to Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't think they had a problem. Therefore, they didn't think they needed Jesus. And so they were standing on the outside of the house while Jesus was on the inside, fellowshipping with the people who needed him. And we need to be men and women who recognize our need for a savior. Not just today, but every day. Do you want to stand? We're going to respond if the band could come up. It's what we're going to do. We're going to have sing a couple of songs and worship and respond. And then I'm going to ask you guys to respond in faith to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to respond and you're going to come forward. And we're going to do some business with God today. There are some of you here who don't know Jesus. And I want you to respond to put your faith and trust in him. There'll be some of you who do know Jesus, many of us. But you know there are things in your life you need to get sorted out. You know there are things in your life that put you at odds with the Holy God. There are things you're saying, things you're doing, things you're spending your time on, things that only you know about but no one else knows about that you need to come and deal with him. And the message from Jesus today is come to me, come to me, come to me. And don't let anything stop you, not the crowds, not the roof, not your own pride, arrogance and self-righteousness come to Jesus it doesn't matter what other people think or what other people doing you need to come to him and get it dealt with and so that's what we're going to do we're going to pray are we going to sing they're going to sing we're going to worship and then I'm going to call some of you out and you just come all right and we'll pray for you and you, you can do your business with God you can do that amen let's go